Good morning. Um, I don't know if you've ever kind of looked for vacation spots or kind of gone through the kind of the pattern and process of going to a place you've never been before. And uh, the internet's great because the internet allows you to essentially virtually go places you've never been. But for some of us, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, you're excited, you see this lovely picture of this massive orange bed in the hotel room and this just looks incredible and you run into the room and you dive on the bed and what you find is in fact that this thing is actually two twin beds pushed together be advised do not jump in the middle it's a gap and it can separate right but the internet has this way of just you look at the shots and it seems so enticing and then when you walk into the room it's just a different reality uh, this pool for example right it just looks like a place you want to go like relax and unwind at the end of the day and then when you walk into that space uh, excited, what you find is actually this. And, um, you know, the hot tub, which is really sketchy looking, is under some essential maintenance, which I'm not exactly sure what essential maintenance is, but that's what's happening. And then you notice the, the green in the tile is not paint, it's mold, right? It's not exactly a place where you're going to unwind. It's not a place you're going to relax. It's more where you might catch a disease and or some type of fungus that's growing. Or uh, maybe it's the view that gets you there. You are so excited. You're like, man, this is going to be awesome. This is actually a shot in a hotel in Istanbul, and it looks unreal. Like, wow, look at that pool. Look at the view we will have. Like, this is worth the money for this spot. And then when you get there, you realize the only view that people will have are the people who are eating breakfast um, on the other side of what appears to be a large bathtub and uh, that, that's the only view that's going to happen, or people eating on the other side of the glass while you do laps in your little tiny bathtub pool. And, and this is just one of those funny things. The internet has a tendency, especially when it comes to hotels and uh, vacation spots, to deceive us because they understand something. They understand that the, the frame, the cropping, determines what you see. That the frame and how you take the picture ultimately determines what you see in the picture. And we get this. This is not just a hotel thing. This is a human thing, right? Some of you only take selfies from the left side, from that angle, because that's your jam. That's the spot you look like the supermodel. Any other side, any other angle isn't quite as uh, accommodating to your inner picture and vision of who you actually are. But we all get that, that the angle, the, the frame that I use will determine what I see. And that idea is what I want to press into this morning using the first Christmas story. And that throughout this month, we're going to be engaging with a series to be, quite honest, I'm so excited about. Because it's going to look at Christmas, not through the lens of just our Christmas, this Christmas, but through the lens of the first Christmas. Because like many of you, you probably have in your house some nativity scene, or you will at some point over the course of this month, see nativity scenes. I even have a little, uh, little people nativity scene in the back that I almost brought out. And it's like, you know, perfect little Joseph, perfect little Mary, perfect little baby Jesus, not crying, smiling. Everything looks pristine and clean. Everything looks great and glorious. If we're, if we're not careful. We can make them the same mistake of first Christmas that people make when it comes to internet photos of hotels. We end up walking away from an idea of the first Christmas that can cause us to miss some things, some really powerful, helpful things. Because I'm convinced that the first Christmas, what happens in and around it, can affect us in this Christmas. 
no matter where you find yourself in. That question that everyone was asked at the beginning when the video was playing, do you wonder about? That as a season, we sing this is the most wonderful time of the year, but I'm convinced that for many of us, Christmas has a lot more wondering than it has wonder. There's a lot of questions bouncing around in our heads, in our hearts. We have questions about our kids. We have questions about our relationship, our relationship status, where we are in life, where we thought we would be in life. Wondering about the future in 2019 and what is that going to hold and you hope it doesn't hold what 2018 holds because you want to know can you return 2018 and get a, a better one. We have a lot of things bouncing around in our heads. There's a lot of wondering, not a lot of wonder. And this morning I'm going to kick off the series by going to the Christmas story, the very beginning of the Christmas story and to look at it through the lens of one of Jesus's original followers you see, the Bible, um, which is the kind of the Christian scriptures, is a two-volume set. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament, primarily the Christian scriptures, um, begins with four biographies centered on the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four um, biography writers of the life of Jesus. The, and what most of us don't realize is that each one of these had each one of these men who wrote the four biographies of Jesus had a unique perspective. They had a unique history. Matthew, who writes the first gospel, was a government accountant turned follower of Jesus. He was a tax collector. He was really good at following details and tracking where valuables have been and where they're headed. He had an eye to detail, and he was Jewish. And so naturally, Matthew's Jewishness and his attention to detail fleshes out in the letter that he writes in the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew particularly has a particular interest in the Jewishness of Jesus. You see, the Old Testament was really predicated on two different promises. There were the promised land and the promised one. In the second half of the Old Testament, what would be called today the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Scriptures, the second half of that, that book had a lot of emphasis on the promised one. This idea that what the Jewish people called the Messiah. And there were a lot of predictions around the promised one. There were a lot of circumstances and situations that would have to play out in order for the promised one to be the promised one. In fact, tonight, Hanukkah kicks off. And Hanukkah is a celebration, festival of lights, but it's rooted in the Maccabean revolt in the second century BC. And the individual responsible for the Maccabean revolt was um, Judah Maccabee, or Judah Maccabus, or however you would want to pronounce his name. It has kind of a couple different variants. But Judah, for a season, the Jewish people wondered if he was the promised one. You see, during this time period leading up to the birth of Jesus, there was an obsession within the Jewish people about looking for the promised one. But what would happen, whether it was with Judah and the Maccabean revolt, or whether it was with some other individuals prior to the birth of Jesus, what would happen is the individual would come and they would start to hold up the predictions in the Old Testament. And they would say, no, these predictions don't line up. This can't be the promised one. And this is why Matthew has such an attention to detail, because Matthew's convinced. He follows Jesus, his life is transformed, he watched Jesus perform miracles and ultimately be killed and resurrected. And so Matthew's convinced he's the Messiah, and so he writes this book that we call the book of Matthew to chronicle those details, which is why when you open up the book of Matthew in chapter 1, it begins with a genealogy or the family tree of Jesus, which is 
kind of a strange way for biographies to begin. But when you're Matthew and you have an incentive, you have a focus in your editorial skills on Jesus being the promised one, what you have to demonstrate, even from the beginning, is that Jesus comes from a certain bloodline. And so that's what Matthew does. He opens up the book, he opens up his letter and says, this is the bloodline, this is the family tree of Jesus and who he descends from. And after he works through the first 17 verses of giving that, he says these words. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. So this is the start of the Christmas story. Now, if you trace through the genealogy, you know that Matthew's attention to detail, his governmental accounting skills are coming out. And so he's specifically tracking Jesus' family line through Joseph. And so that's why in the book of Matthew, you will have an emphasis on Joseph and his story. Luke, who is the second writer, um, Luke will focus in on Mary and her kind of telling of what happens. But Matthew is distinctly coming from the lens of Joseph in this time period. And so what plays out is that his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll come back to this found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because you have to realize this sentence had never before been written in human history. And it has since not been written again in human history. It's a, it's a strange sentence. And it's really easy to get caught up in that last phrase um, because it's so um, overwhelming. It's so surprising. But what happens with the Christmas story is we're so familiar with it, we tend to just blow right through this whole section. And we can miss, if we don't slow it down, what's going on around it. Which is why I just want to take this verse in the next one, where it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. See, this is a different world than what we live in today. The Jewish idea of marriage, the institution of marriage, the way they approach marriage, was a little different than how we approach it today. That's why when you read the sentence, it's a little confusing. You see, for us, especially for those who uh, maybe uh, kind of married in a church and, and took what would have been a very Christian um, approach to marriage, the Christian approach to marriage is that both the legal and the religious ceremonial aspects are kind of woven together. So what I mean is that the day, like for Jenny and I, when we got married, you know, we had the pomp and the circumstance. She was beautiful, and I looked like a bald guy in a tux. And our families are there, and, you know, there's the religious ceremony and the scripture and the prayers. But there's also, immediately following the religious ceremony, we walked into a room with the, the, the person who officiated our marriage, and we signed a legally binding document called a marriage certificate. So in... In our day and age, both the legal and the religious ceremonial are intertwined together. They happen at the same time, they're binding, and, and the idea of Christian and Jewish marriage is that marriage officially kind of happens when it's consummated, and that's the moment where those two kind of things come together. And, but for the Jewish people, they actually separated the legal and the religious ceremonial. And it wasn't separated by a few minutes it was separated by a solid year. You have to remember, this is before the age of Facebook. This is an, a day and age where people didn't travel more than typically 70 miles over the course of their circle in life. And so you had a lot of arranged marriages during this time frame. 
And so the way that would play out is, let's say you were arranged to be married to this other individual. You didn't really know them that well, but you were legally contracted. You came together, your families came together, there was this whole kind of circumstantial thing that happened around it, and you would sign a legally binding contract where you would be pledged to be married. This is what it means when it says that Mary and Joseph were pledged to be married. They had made the legally binding agreement that a year from now, we will consummate this marriage, we will come together in a religious ceremony, and our families will gather, and it will be a big and significant deal. But during that year, there is no consummation, there is no physical relationship. All there is is kind of unsupervised times for them to come together and to get to know one another. This is an arranged marriage, so this tends to be helpful to have conversations before you say, I do, and go and do anything, right? I mean, so this is a helpful thing, culturally speaking. And so here's a year of them interacting. And what we know from Luke's account is that Mary has this moment, this kind of supernatural thing, and she finds out she's going to be pregnant, and she leaves and goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth. For three months, she's with Elizabeth in a different town, and then she comes back, and it's when she comes back that this moment happens. Joseph has not seen her. It's been three months, and like anyone, he's probably excited to see his bride and future bride, and he comes up to see her, and she is clearly past the point of being unclear about pregnancy. Like, it's no longer did she gain some weight while she was gone. It was clear she is pregnant. And Joseph knows this is not my child, so something's happened. And this is why we see in verse 19, it says that he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly because the way the Jewish construct worked, the legal agreement was technical marriage. And the only way you could break it was to divorce you would essentially have to serve them another legal document that said we are no longer together and we separate this union that we came together legally to, to do a while back ago. So this is kind of a big moment, but I don't want to push past this because I think this is where it gets really intriguing. There's a lot of nuance in this that, remember, Matthew's writing for a Jewish audience, and so there's this whole background that the Jews would have seen to the foreground of the story playing out. And because we just see the foreground, because we didn't grow up in a first century Jewish concept, context, we can miss the backdrop, this rich backdrop that Matthew knows his audience already has. And so they recognize that this legal union has been unfolding, and somewhere along the line, Mary has broken it, and that Joseph is devastated. I mean, think about it. You walk into a moment, you, your life is figured out. Like Joseph and Mary, they've They've got their life figured out. They know how this thing's going to play out. They know how this thing is going to kind of work. They, they can plan their dates. They can plan their future. The first century was a pretty predictable time period. You could pretty much sketch out your future down to the wire. You would get married. You would have a bunch of kids. You would do the same job you do every single day, probably the same job that your parents did and that they trained you in. And then you would die somewhere around the age 40 to 45 because the life expectancy at the time. So this is pretty predictable. This is why they get married young. Mary's probably um, around 14, 15 years old at this point. Because everything gets shifted back. Because when you're going to die at 45, you, you tend to focus on the bucket list earlier in life. Right? And so this is where they are. 
And Joseph's world has just been blown up. All the months of getting to know her, all the time of being able to build this thing and to envision his future, and in a moment, he sees her and it all falls apart. That's devastating. Because now it means he has to walk away from that heartbreak, find a new wife, go through that year of legal agreement, and he's going to spend the rest of his life as the man that everyone knows that his first wife had cheated on. And so, to be honest, Joseph should have been angry. He should have been really mad. And because this is first century Jerusalem, you may not agree with this, but this is the reality of the day. Joseph had a lot of power and a lot of legal options. Joseph easily could have publicly disgraced her. That's why you see Joseph didn't want to publicly disgrace her. It's because Jerusalem at the time, the whole region of Israel at the time, was ruled by religious laws. And adultery was a significant no-no. It was so, it was such a big deal that even while it wasn't common in first century Jerusalem or first century Israel, you could have your spouse executed on charges of adultery. Like this was a life-threatening incident that he found himself in. Now, I recognize for some of you, let me just be real because you're thinking it, you wish that was still around because you'd have liked to have done that to your ex-husband or your ex-wife, okay? I, I, can, I can feel it in the room, so I'm just going to say it for you, okay? But this is actually what happened in this time period. And Joseph is sitting there, and he's dealing with the weight of the disappointment, the weight of the heartbreak, and he's mad. But Matthew gives us something in this verse that if, again, you're not Jewish and you're not seeing this in the original language, you can skim over it. It says that, Matt, it says that because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he was going to divorce her quietly. That phrase, faithful to the law, is a hard phrase to translate. You can actually translate that with one word and you can call it just which kind of captures more of this general characteristic of him. It does flesh out that for Joseph to have pushed forward with this relationship, it would have been obvious to everyone that Joseph was in fact the father because that would have been the just thing to do. And so that would have been in this time period a very disgraceful thing for him and Mary both. But there's another way of translating that word that I actually think is more helpful for our conversation today, and it's that he's compassionate. See, Joseph had a different frame of reference. Remember how we talked about with the hotel picture that how you frame it determines what you see in it? Joseph comes to this situation with all the heartbreak, with all the pain, with all the devastation that you and I could imagine him having in this moment. And instead of him having this frame of anger and pain, he has a frame of compassion. He doesn't publicly ridicule. He doesn't lash out because I don't know if you've noticed, but humans, when we hurt, we tend to hurt others. We emotionally leak, right? You come home, you've had a bad day, and you're around your loved ones, and you haven't seen them all day, and the first thing that comes out your mouth is something angry or frustrated. You find yourself getting kind of irritated with your kids, and they haven't done anything, but it's that emotional leakage. 
You had a negative conversation at work. You had a bad moment with, with a coworker or someone cutting you off or that client. And all of a sudden you feel it on the inside. It's human to want to hurt after you've been hurt. And some of you know that really well because I just described your relationship. But what Joseph does is he takes this different frame. And he doesn't look through the lens of pain. He looks through the lens of compassion. And what does he do? He decides, I'm going to divorce her privately, which legally meant that he would bring her into a room with two other witnesses, and there would be divorce papers filed that essentially, in, in oversimplified terms, would say, I, Joseph, release you, Mary, from the bonds of marriage. And then he would sign it, and the two witnesses would sign it. And the condition of that release would be her obvious infidelity. And that's very gracious. Not bringing her to the public square, accusing her of what she'd done, or even having and pursuing the death penalty with her. His frame determines how he approaches the situation. And out of that compassion, he doesn't lash out. He's gracious. And this frame of reference is a really powerful concept. In fact, this past week, I was at a leadership conference, and one of the individuals we're speaking uh, was a, a former CEO of one of the largest retailers in America. And what was unique about him was that he kind of made this seismic shift in their corporation by declaring in 2008 that their biggest competitor were not, was not a large box store across the street, that their biggest competitor didn't even have a store. It was Amazon. Now, that's common today, right? If you're in the business sector or you read retail journals, you know that that's the constant conversation around that world right now is that Amazon, Amazon, Amazon. But in 2008, most people, whether you were Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, or Target, you tend to view your competitor through the lens of the store across the street or down the road. And he made business news by recognizing that their biggest competitor was Amazon. And so took a half a billion dollar hit in the land that they had already purchased to build new stores, and they reallocated all of that money to build their website, which positioned them to be a successful retail firm that is competing both in-store and online with Amazon. And what he was doing in 2008 that was so revolutionary was the exact same thing Joseph was doing. He recognized that his frame of reference influenced and impacted what he saw. This is something that throughout the year, to kind of bring it even more into a practical term, this has been a legitimate struggle for me this year. This has been something I've had to kind of go through a lot because there's three different tools I want to give you that will help you reframe and change the circumstances that you find yourself in, to, to reorient the way that you see the situations and the people in and around your life. And these are three tools that I've been using this year in the midst of frantic and hectic situation. Like, this has been real for me. I, I remember earlier in the year, I was sitting at Starbucks, and I was, it was a Saturday, and this was during a period of time where I was basically um, working nonstop, and, and I was trying to complete all the chapters that I had to write for my doctorate. And, um, and so I remember sitting there, typing, and as I've shared a few weeks ago, and a uh, the sermon developmental, 
that writing was a really difficult thing for me to do. And I remember sitting there and this couple walks in and then this father and a daughter walk in. And out of nowhere, I just felt this like anger well up inside of me. This self-pity start to kind of creep in because I was not at home. I wasn't with my family. I love my family. I think they're awesome. I like that I get to be in their presence. Like they're little rays of sunshine, right? My day is always better when I'm with my wife or my daughter. And here I am doing the thing that I hate to do, sitting in a room by myself in a coffee shop, trying to type away to, to finish this stupid thing. And there's this father and this daughter. And what bubbles up into my head is it must be nice. It must be nice. I don't even, I, I'm not going to get to do that with my daughter today. And this self-pity creeped in. And what I was doing in that moment was the first tool that you have to realize. See, the frame of reference is a really difficult thing to catch. When you walk into someone's house, I doubt the words you say is, oh, that is a lovely frame. Right? We tend to see the pictures not the frame that surrounds the pictures. We miss the frames oftentimes. And the first tool is becoming aware of that frame up there, and so you have to learn to pay attention to the self-talk in your head. And this is what's happening to me while I'm sitting there. And you not just, not just become aware of the self-talk, but you actually have to self-talk back. So what do I do in that moment? I'm sitting there and I'm typing, and I feel all this pity well up inside of me. I feel all this frustration begin to creep in. And I remember just hitting pause and say, okay, Chris, let's talk about this. I don't know if you talk to yourself, but I do. Not out loud, because you're crazy if you do it out loud. <laughs> but if you do it inside your head, no one knows. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, Chris, you know what? I know this is hard. I know this feels like a life sentence, but this is just a life season. Because in six months, you will be done. And, and here's why you're doing this. You see, in Six years, when your little girl is no longer a little girl, but she's a teenager and she's going through her situations and her circumstances, and maybe it's not going to be writing for her, but it'll be something else for her. And you're going to be able to walk into this Starbucks and sit down with her across the table and begin to tell her the story of how you didn't give up and how you persevered and how you pushed through and how you accomplished a life dream. And that you can then take that moment and pour out that inspiration into that little frame and raise her eyes and lift her spirit you're doing this for her Chris because one day you're going to get to tell her how you persevered and it will help her persevere and so I'm sitting there in Starbucks and I'm like typing even harder because I'm talking to myself and I'm like that's right I'm gonna do this I'm, I'm gonna finish this thing ah you know I gotta feel it I'm typing and what's incredible is that next Friday, less than a week from today, our family will be at that school and my little girl sitting in the audience will watch me walk across the stage and get that hood and recognize in the moment, like that's a deposit in her. That's that self-talk that bore out of that moment in Starbucks when I said, I'm not giving up. Because when you become aware of the frame inside your brain, you can start to reframe it. Because oftentimes, you may not be able to change what's going on out there, but you can affect and change what's happening up here. And that self-talk, while simple, is powerful. And what I would have to tell myself over and over again, it was a kind of a causey slogan, and it's still a causey slogan, to be honest with you, is this is not a life sentence, this is a life season. 
This is not a life sentence. This is a life season. And I say that regularly. And for our family, one of the kind of just moments will be this Friday when it happens. And it'll be like, we made it through that life season. Because for some of you, you feel like you're trapped in a life sentence right now. That job situation, your financial situation, your relational situation, your, your kind of pressures and struggles with your kids right now. This season of wondering if you're going to have that relationship. It can start to feel like you've been wandering for a while. And you start to wonder if it'll ever end. And you start to become convinced you're in a life sentence instead of a life season. And by taking that frame and realizing the self-talk piece is present, you can start to self-talk back and reorient the way you see your circumstance because how you frame it will determine what you see in it. This brings me to my second tool. It's gratitude. And this is simple too, but it is powerful. Because if you approach your life circumstances with the frame of griping, Focused on what you don't have. Guess what will always fill your frame? What you don't have. If your frame of reference is griping and complaining about what you're lacking, then you will only see what you're lacking when you look. But when you approach through gratitude, and you frame it through the lens of focusing intentionally, gratefully on what you have in your life, then guess what happens when you start to look? You'll find the things that you already have. You'll see the things that you're already grateful for. One of the kind of inner exercises, this is a family passion for us because um, I I want our daughter to grow up with gratitude because we live in a culture of excess and it's really easy to like miss that, right? And, um, And so one of the things that I say to me and that I say to her is, hey, Ella, Imagine we woke up tomorrow and the only things we had were the things that we were grateful for today. What would you be lacking tomorrow? Just because we tend to like miss the fact that there is so much to be grateful for. We can gripe and complain about our job or our car or our, our shoes or our clothes, but the different frame would let you realize that the world appreciates you not walking around naked and that you have a car that you can drive around in. Like you, when you start to look through that frame, you start to find what you're looking for. And gratitude is a very powerful frame of reference. And for some of us, the thing that will get you through this Christmas season, because there is a lot of wondering, is gratitude. I know that there's pain. I know there's frustration. I know that there are things that are lacking. But there are even more things that are present in your life that are good that you haven't noticed. And to approach this season with a lens of gratitude, whether it's celebrating the loved one who will not be there this year and recognizing and remembering and saying, hey, I want, let's be grateful. This, this is a hard Christmas, but I, I just wanted to remind us The reason this Christmas hurts so much is because of all the good that they brought in our relationship. You remember when they said this? You remember when they did that? And to approach even our losses through the frame of gratitude. And the third and final frame is a little bit outside of us. It actually helps us to impact and influence other people's frames of reference is generosity. 
We spent last month talking about it because I'm convinced that generosity is the only thing that you and I get to do that actually helps other people's frames shift. That the first two are really about you and you reorienting your frame of reference. But when we practice generosity, we actually help to shift others' frames of reference too. Right? This is what Joseph does. His generosity to Mary shifts his frame and he, he doesn't take the public disgraceful route. He decides privately to divorce her, to not ridicule. His generosity, his graciousness was a very, very kind and reference-shifting thing for Mary. But when we practice generosity, we shift other people's. There are individuals who are walking through difficult times, and when someone steps into your life and practices generosity, gives you food, gives you resources, helps you walk through a dark period of your life, all of a sudden, you're reminded, God has not forgotten me. God's not given up. People still are for me. Like It helps to shift the turn of tide. It doesn't change your circumstances, but it at least starts to change you in the midst of your circumstances. That generosity is a powerful tool, and it's why even as a church, we practice this love does so aggressively because we know that our world tends to walk with frames of despair and hopelessness and that we can be a force for good who can step in and shift their frame towards what's good and to, towards the hope that we believe our faith has. That's why even in the, we wrap up this year, we're doing the Love Does offering where 100% of it's focused on outside of these four walls. And I've said, look, you should give towards that because it's not going to be about what's happening inside of this, even though what happens inside of here is really good and helpful. But all of that offering is going in 2019 to shape what we're doing outside of these four walls. Because we believe generosity is a powerful frame shifter for those who are around us. And that's why throughout this month, we're going to have opportunities to practice that. And it's why we're going to give gifts to our families, because we want to demonstrate that love. Because at the end of the day, we recognize that what you and how you frame a situation will determine what you see in it. But fortunately for us, this isn't just helpful and practical. Joseph doesn't just have a moment with Mary. The story continues. It says, verse 20, but after this, he'd consider this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And that comes from the book of Isaiah. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. That what happens out of those two verses that we were able to extract some really helpful benefits and some helpful tools, what continues is the most powerful lens, gratitude, generosity, right? Like, it's the, it's the most powerful frame shifter of them all. It's the first Christmas. And I recognize for some of us that you read this or you hear this and, and the idea that God would, would step on and into and grow inside of a, a woman is mind-blowing. And it's one of the things that you kind of say, hey, wait, 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 wait. 
Like I was with you through the three, those things, okay, those were helpful, but do you really believe like God, I don't know, the like shrink or like poof or whatever and like that he grew inside of Mary and was born as a baby? Do you really believe that? Like that's, that's extraordinary. That's a little crazy. And that Joseph has, goes to sleep one night and has a dream and in the dream an angel visits him. You know, most of us, we don't have angels visiting us. We have weird, creepy clowns and, like, strange, you know, classroom teacher dreams. Like, we don't have angel of the Lord dreams. Like, you really believe that. And I think that the thing about our faith is that you do not have to check your brain to engage with the Christian faith. So the answer is yes, I do. But here's why. I don't believe it because I read it. Because that's not enough. I believe it because I take a step back from this thing. And one of the fundamental assumptions that I arrived at in 2001 after reading, I don't know, six or seven theoretical physics books at the time when I was not a Christian, well, I came to this place of realizing, you know what, the world is so vast and complex, I think there must be something more. In Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, he actually uses the word God frequently because he's bumping up against the limitation. And that maybe for some of you grew up and you learned that the world happened, the universe was created through the Big Bang. Okay, well, that's great. But I know something about us humans. When there is a bang, we often want to get down to the who. Right? An explosion never happens without a cause. And we tend to obsess over the cause of explosions. We want to know what was behind it. And so, you know what? I believe that the God who is big enough, strong enough to go bang. If a God can go bang in all this forms. Because scientists to this day, if you dig into the, the, the lane of research, one of the things that you start to strip away really carefully and you start to see really quickly is the fact that scientists have no clue how this thing started. They have a lot of theories about after it starts, but they have no theories for how it started. And I'm just crazy enough or logical enough to believe that a God who can go bang and boom can cause a baby bump too. Right? I mean, if he can craft stars and heavens and giraffes on earth, then surely he can make a baby bump pop out too. That seems a little easy for him to do. And on top of that, I take a step back and I look at Jesus, who is one of the most historically um, verified individuals who's ever lived on planet Earth, not just because the Bible says so, but because ancient literature constantly points to him. Jesus Christ was a historically documented individual. And people who do not believe what I believe have referenced the fact that he was a miracle worker, that he lived in the time period that the Bible says he lives inside of, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And on top of that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John ultimately end up losing their life because they're absolutely convinced that Jesus was in fact God on earth who died and who came back to the life. And when an individual 
through this lens and through other historical documents, when an individual predicts his death, dies on the time, and in the time he says so, and then walks out of the grave three days later, I don't know about you, but it's like if I'm ever in a place and Jason Bourne happened to be there and he's like, follow me, I'll get you out. I'm rolling with Jason Bourne, right? In life, if a guy says, I'm going to die, he dies and he comes back from the dead, I'm with him. Wherever he's going, whatever he's doing, I'm like, I'm following that guy because that guy's got something ain't nobody else got. And so when we read this passage, yes, it is extraordinary. Yes, it is super to the natural. But I believe it's possible, even if it is improbable. Because God is bigger than those things. And that ultimately, what the first Christmas gives us is a whole different frame of reference. Ultimately, what Joseph would find out of this conversation is that his purpose, there was a purpose to the pain, that there was a destiny to the disappointment. He would discover in the midst of this frustration that God was going to bring freedom and deliverance to people. And that the first Christmas has the power to transform even you and I in this Christmas. And over the course of this month, I want to invite you back to this series because we're going to continue to walk through this. And as we lead up to our Christmas Eve services, I believe this series has the power to transform your world today. And that this Christmas can be different because the first Christmas and what God did in the midst of it. Let's pray.